humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, talking to you from the bunker at AM 950. You are listening to Ellie 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled to be talking to you, back to talking to you on this lovely Saturday. Um, we are um, into full autumn mode here in Minnesota. Wonderful, wonderful, cool sleeping weather, although last night quite the big storm, with the hint of color in our forests. Yes, it is a nice, nice time to be in Minnesota, although <laughs> we know what's coming. We have a great show. The big interview is an encore interview of Janie, excuse me, Jamie Edwards, who I spoke to in April of this year. You may recall that he came and talked to us about an organization he's a big part of, Pink Socks, organization around giving around pink, giving out pink socks and talking about compassion. In fact, I've got a listener who told me that because of that show, he went and bought a, num- a bunch of pink socks for people. In my C block, I will share about my experience in talking to a metro church uh, just this week about what it means to be LGBTQ. But let's begin by going back to this season, this season of fall. Here in the Midwest, it will soon be time to harvest the millions of acres of corn and soybeans planted in the spring. Parenthetically, I took Jack, my golden retriever puppy, to a puppy daycare yesterday, and the daycare is way, way, I mean way out in rural Minnesota, in the middle of what are now golden soybean fields. Um, And as far as you could see, it was just golden. Um, It was a brilliant sight, and it so warmed my heart, reminding me that humans are so incredibly tied to the land. And it is the land that feeds us. So it only seems fitting that today, at the start of harvest season, I talk about an idealist who is largely credited with helping to feed the world. That idealist, Norman Borlaug, helped to engineer crop seeds that would drastically increase yields and production across the world. Who is Norm Borlaug, our featured idealist? Well, first, he he has both Iowa and Minnesota roots. He was born in Cresco, Iowa, and long attended the University of Minnesota, earning his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. at the U. In fact, Norman Borlaug met his wife. They would be married nearly 70 years before she died before him. While he waited, they met while while Norm Borlaug was waiting tables at a Dinkytown restaurant. For those not in Minnesota, uh, Dinkytown is an enclave of funky brick and wooden buildings, um, although <laughs> the modern, technolo- modern construction is coming in and taking away a lot of that character. But in its day, it was bars, restaurants, and record stores. Bob Dylan, in fact, first performed in Dinkytown. Norman Borlaug's idealism appears to have been shaped by two events in the early 1930s. First, coming from a family with no resources, he had to pause his education at times to earn money. And in 1935, he ended up working with the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. Remember, one of FDR's New Deal entities. I bet you didn't even know you'd be hearing me talk about FDR, did you? Uh, Which um, had Norm Borlaug working with unemployed people. 
on various federal projects. Many of those people were on the brink of starvation, at least before they started working for the government. Borlaug would later recount, quote, I saw how food changed them. All of this left scars on me, unquote. The second watershed event in Norman Borlaug's life was that he attended a lecture at the University of Minnesota about how parasitic fungus in plants destroyed crops and yields. Up until then, Borlaug had intended to go into forest pathology, but that lecture at the U while he was still an undergrad, that lecture prompted Borlaug to go into plant pathology, how crops thrive or die depending on weather, insects, or whatever. Eventually, this led Borlaug, after he graduated from the U, the University of Minnesota, sorry, that's shorthand for Minnesotans know what I'm talking about, but the world doesn't. After Norman Borlaug graduated from the University of Minnesota, he went and lived in Mexico where, with funding from an American foundation, Borlaug worked with others to combat fungus in wheat. That fungus is called rust, but the rust didn't affect every wheat plant. And over the course of 10 years, Borlaug and his team bred what's called wheat cultivators um, that amounted to 6,000 individual crossings of wheat. So you take the healthy plants, you, you get the seeds from that, those plants, and then you plant them, and then you have more healthy plants, and on and on and on until you have very hardy plants. Um, and and uh, eventually, if you do it right and you've got the seeds, and they can become the dominant wheat plant. Norman Borlaug also worked to cultivate dwarf wheat, um, so shorter wheat um, that has thicker stems, which allow allows for supporting larger seed heads. The, I, I know you're getting a whole lot more about planting than I thought I'd give you, but the more the wheat seeds that are on the head of a wheat plant, the more wheat um, production you get. Ultimately, all of this worked, okay, down in Mexico. In less than 20 years, Borlaug's team had increased Mexico's harvest, wheat harvest, sixfold. The 1963 wheat harvest was six times larger than Mexico's wheat harvest in 1944. In fact, in 19, by 1963, Mexico was self-sufficient in wheat production and had become a net exporter of wheat. Wow. Soon, Borlaug had shifted his focus to Asia. In the mid-1960s, India, which we all know is the world's second most populous country, was unable to feed its people. Um, it was also in the middle of a war with Pakistan. In fact, in 1966 and 67, the U.S. shipped a fifth of its wheat production to India. Think about that. One-fifth of all the wheat produced in the U.S. was sent to India in the mid-1960s because people in India were dying of starvation. In 1965, Borlaug began shifting seeds uh, – excuse me – shipping seeds for high-yield wheat to India – and within 10 years, okay, by the mid-1970s, India was self-sufficient. Listen to this. In 1965, wheat yields in India were 12.3 million tons. By 1970, just five years later, with Borlaug's help, India had, harvest, had harvested 20.1 million tons. So that was an increase of 8 million tons in simply five years. But hold on. By the year 2000... India had harvested 76.4 million tons of wheat. That's com that compares to 12.3 in 
just um, in 25 years, excuse me, 35 years earlier. Neighboring Pakistan, likewise, saw a dramatic increase in wheat production. Uh, Borlaug would then shift his um, his uh, crop increasing production tactics uh, to rice and to other crops. He went. He started to go to Africa with similar dramatic effects in, cre- in increasing yield. All of this led to calling Borlaug's work the Green Revolution. I know many of you have heard that phrase. That's where it comes from from Norman Borlaug and his work. Also, let me bring Borlaug's work into 2021 and the issues we face over climate and climate change. You see, by increasing white, excuse me, I I can't read very well today. I apologize for you. By increasing wheat and rice and other crop production using the same amount of land, okay, by doing that, you don't have to get any more land. All you have to do is just increase the yield of the crops that are on that land. By doing that, you prevent deforestation um, by reducing the demand for new farmland. Borlaug estimated that without increasing global, global, global crop yields, gosh, Ellie, um, okay, without Borlaug in the year 2000 estimated that without increasing global crop yields, 1.3 billion more acres of forest would have been converted to farmland. In other words, but for Borlaug's work and that of his colleagues, we would have had more than a billion acres of forest converted to farmland. Think about that. For all of his work, um, Norman Borlaug um, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. In his award uh, excuse me, in his award Nobel lecture the day after getting the award, this is what Norm uh, Borlaug said, quote, when the Nobel Peace Prize Committee designated me the recipient of the 1970 award for my contribution to the Green Revolution, they were in effect, I believe, selecting an individual to symbolize the vital role of agriculture and food production in a world that is hungry both for bread and for peace. You see, Norm Borlaug understands that being able to have full stomachs is one of the ways that you get peace. Borlaug's work inspired the World Food Prize given to individuals who have increased the quality, quantity, or availability of food in the world. The World Food Prize is awarded every year. At age 95, Norman Borlaug died in Dallas, Texas. He had been teaching at Texas A&M until shortly before his death. So, talk about changing the world. Wow. Norman Borlaug, idealist to the nth degree and someone whom both Iowa and Minnesota can be proud of. Next, you're going to get the big encore interview of Jamie Edwards of Pink Sox. You will like it because people really liked it when it aired the first time. And then I'll see you on the other end on the C Block. Thanks a lot. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Bye. And then This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. 
I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. Back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio with your lovely Ellie Krug here. Okay, so, um, you know, go Google Stephen Donziger and uh, you'll get everything you need out of Wikipedia on that. And, and stay tuned, okay? As I said, May 10th supposedly will be the trial and there you go. But so Stephen Donziger, an idealist who's paying a price. I've got another idealist now for the big interview, who is going forward in the world, um, doing good and in a way which is far less litigious. And, and I have on the line with me Jamie Edwards, who is the CEO of Cloudbreak Health. Uh, Jamie, are you there? I am here. Happy to be here. Oh, well, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Thank you so very much for being here on the show. We should probably let the audience know how you and I connected. And so... Um, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a Twitter junkie. Okay. That's how I get a lot of news and information. And on Twitter, I happened to see something about an organization named Pink Socks. And, um, and you had, you had tweeted, tweeted about that in one way or another. And I reached out to you and I asked if you'd be on my show. Does that ring a bell for you? It does. It's a perfect recollection of what happened. And so, uh, so Jamie, I want to, um, and I want uh, the audience to hear about pink socks. But first, th- there's a story even behind pink socks, which goes back to Cloudbreak Health and your organization, which is doing sounds like incredible work again from um, a kind of a groundbreaking um, um, uh, way of doing medicine. Can you tell us what about what is Cloudbreak Health and how did it start back way back in the early 2000s? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Cloudbreak Health um, is a unified telemedicine company that uses digital health tools to help resolve healthcare disparities and address social determinants of health. And so what basically all that means is we are trying to use technology to level the playing field for underserved communities and uh, these patients who typically find our healthcare system challenging. Um, and it originally started in 2003 by a gentleman named Andy Panos. And Andy had made a trip to Mexico. Uh, His family was in a car accident. No one spoke Spanish. And uh, a host of problems ensued um, that impacted him in such a fundamental way that he came back to the United States and said, if this is happening, uh, you know, if it happened to me in Mexico, in a diverse country like the United States, it's got to be happening every day. And so he ended up uh, doing some research in his hometown of Columbus, Ohio. And what most people don't realize if, you know, in, in, in LA, I'll ask you, like, how many different languages do you think are spoken in Columbus, Ohio? I would guess maybe 50 to 70. 
126. Yeah, okay. Right? 126 <laughs> different languages are spoken in you know many cities around the country. And in Columbus, people will be like, oh, the number one language has to be Spanish. Well, it's not. It's Somali. Ah. And so as he dug into this problem, he realized that these patients are generally challenged in navigating the healthcare system. They are three times as likely to encounter harm. Um, and their length of stays are all longer yep. um, because you need to have these interpreters at the point of care in order to empower these patients to take control of their care and empower a doctor to make the right diagnosis. Um, you know, communication is the number one diagnostic tool that these doctors have. And so over time, um, Andy started building the company and I got involved because it was a distressed asset back in 2007, 2008. And so I stepped in to help, you know, kind of save the business, put it on a new track and to, and to help it become what Andy always envisioned it to be. And so Andy and I partnered together. I took over the CEO role. He took over, you know, he ended up staying on a COO and we built the business from, you know, 30,000 of revenue a month to something today that's over $30 million plus of revenue um, and to something that's in 1,800 hospitals performing over 100,000 encounters a month. The lion's share is bringing these language interpreters to the point of care for LEP and deaf patients, but we started to branch out to do other things like telestroke, telepsychiatry, and become a unified telemedicine platform that brings services into communities that need them. Well, and of course, with the pandemic, um, I've got to believe that your services, the demand has increased tenfold, if not a hundredfold. Um, and, and people are far more willing now, aren't they not, um, to do telemedicine? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think what the pandemic did was for us, it really accelerated our product roadmap, not so much our revenue, but our product roadmap. We ended up launching new services in the market like telequarantine, which we offered for free to our client hospitals. What is that? Um, what is telequarantine? <laughs> so tele, yeah, telequarantine was a new service that we pioneered. Uh, we were the first people to do it in the country that basically enabled our devices to be rolled into a room and turn any hospital room into a connected care room. Um, and so doctors didn't need to go in to round on the patient. They could do it from outside the room. So uh, we were lowering the risk of contagion. Yep. They didn't have to gown up. So we were reducing the use of PPE. Um, and it also reduced the isolation of that COVID patient in that room because they always talked about COVID being a very lonely diagnosis because no one could come visit you. And so in a HIPAA compliant way, we gave um, those patients the ability to reach out to their family members on those devices, bring the doctor into the call so that they could take much more of a team approach to the care and the patient knew that they were being supported by family, et cetera. So that was one thing that we did. We also launched our own virtual clinic to help see patients at home. Um, and both of those are kind of newer areas for us, but have proven to really move the needle in market and support what our mission is, which is to humanize healthcare. And for us, that's about really creating what is a, a better patient encounter where the patient is treated not like a object, but like a person where the provider is not treated like a consumable, but like a trusted coach. I'm loving it. And, um, and Jamie, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Okay. But I, and maybe a bug oh, yes. in your ear. All right. You're aware, um, you know, I'm transgender. Um, and I'm going to talk about this at the end of my show here, but you're aware that there are states right now like Arkansas and maybe Alabama and maybe Mississippi that are yep. actually making it illegal for doctors to work with transgender youth um, on, on medical needs, on therapeutic needs. You are, I, I assume you're aware that that's happening. 
Yeah, definitely know that it's happening, and it's absolutely tragic. Um, you know, we take a lot of pride in our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. You've probably right. seen some of the stuff that we've been doing on LinkedIn. And um, everybody, everybody, LA deserves access to care um, and to high quality health care at that. And um, we really need to, I know there have been some companies that have come up recently who are really focused on the, you know, transgender and yep. LGBTQ space. Um, and I think that is nothing but wonderful for the industry, and we need to see more. Of yeah, it. I'm just wondering whether your company could tele- do telemedicine for those families that are going to lose their health care, their health providers in Arkansas, since you're not located yeah, look, in Arkansas. Yeah, I mean, our, our, platform could absolutely, <laughs> our platform could absolutely be used to do it. What we are not, <clears throat> pardon me, excuse me, is a technology-enabled medical group, so we don't have our own doctors, but we do ah, okay. have a – network of other physicians that we don't employ that we plug people into so if uh you can help us we're you know plug into the right people we're happy to help step in and solve that issue well let's maybe have that conversation um off air okay and so um because i may very well be able to do that for you um okay what uh oh well look at my clock jamie um we're um, uh, we're going to end the first segment here but when we come back i want to talk with you about pink socks okay because my great. audience absolutely needs to hear about this organization. All right? Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Okay. Uh, audience, we've been speaking with Jamie Edwards, from, uh, who is the CEO of Cloudbreak Health. When we come back, we're going to talk with him. He's a board member of Pink Sox, and you're going to just love this organization when we talk about it. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. We're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, AM 950. We've been speaking with Jamie Edwards, the CEO of Cloudbreak Health. But um, now we're going to talk about his role as a board member of an organization named Pink Sox. Jamie, will you please, I take great delight in asking you this, tell my audience about Pink Sox. What is it? What does it do? What does it stand for? So Pink Socks is a 501c3 nonprofit um, that was originally started back in 2015 by a gentleman named Nick Adkins and uh, one of his colleagues, Andrew Richards. And it is an organization whose really sole goal is to spread love and kindness. <laughs> and um, I've been involved in the organization now for, you know, got probably four years. Um, I originally met Nick at a exponential medicine conference in San Diego. And Nick is a guy who is a tremendous human being, but he's also very noticeable because he wears a kilt, has a big beard, and he's one of these guys who originally people would look at and say, I wonder what that guy's up to. And um, Nick realized that in the serendipity of kind of how he dressed and the conversations that he was able to start, how important that connectivity was between all of us. And he um, is someone who kind of went to Burning Man and Burning Man kind of changed his life. But one of the key principles of Burning Man is this concept of radical gifting. And so he came back from Burning Man with this concept of, you know, integrating gifting into his life um, as a way to promote 
kindness. Um, and over time, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. In, in 2015, he started giving these socks out at HIMSS, which is the Health Information Management Society Conference. Um, and they, um, you know, became a calling card in a way for people to, he would gift them and he would say, you know, with all these conversations that are starting, like enjoy those connections, you know, be the good in the world. Um, and he would just have people pay it forward. So he'd give people some socks and then he'd give them some socks to gift. And it's kind of crazy, Ellie, over time, we've now have over a hundred thousand pairs of socks that have been gifted globally. Um, there are, uh, princesses in, uh, the EU that are wearing them. Um, leaders of healthcare companies across the country are wearing them. Um, and, um, the most recent chapter of pink socks has been in schools. And there are currently 25 schools in nine states who are part of what we call the Pink Socks tribe. Um, and the, every person in the school is gifted a pair of socks. Um, and these students um, are now all part of like a kindness curriculum that has been developed. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of like the serendipity of not knowing where this was going to take us and having it kind of end up here. But it's really been a wonderfully gratifying movement to be a part of. And uh, I couldn't be prouder of the work that's being done. Well, and these are, I mean, these literally are pink socks. I mean, they're like kind of hot pink socks. And do they have mustaches on them? They have mustaches on them, which I think um, was a kind of archetype of the original socks that Nick gave out, okay. um, which became very noticeable. Um, but yeah, you notice the color, you notice those. There's also a puzzle piece on there, which is kind of, you know, the, the connectivity of how we all fit together. Um, and that was, a, that, those were kind of a recent addition to the socks that Nick has made as part of the messaging. Okay. Well, and, and, and Jamie, it, it is just so, it's so fundamental. An organization about kindness, about, you know, uh, being good to each other, about empathy and love. I mean, this is like right up Ellie Krug's alley for sure with the work that I do. Uh, <laughs> but it's work that is so needed. But now, um, because, you know, we, and, and I know you know this, we are a society of storytellers and story listeners. That is how yep. we learn. Will you tell my audience, please, the story of Mrs. Blancas and her fifth grade sure. class in El Paso? Absolutely. So as we all know, certain things go viral on Twitter and unfortunately in social media. Um, and unfortunately, it's usually the negative stuff that appeals to our fight or flight mechanism um, as human beings. You know, for some right. reason, you know, tragedy spreads like wildfire. But on occasion, good news spreads like wildfire and the positive work that people do when they see it, it really impacts them. And, you know, they desire to, to share that story to make other people feel good. So what Miss Blancas did, she was a, a teacher. Uh, she teaches first grade at uh, Dr. Sue Shook Elementary, um, you know, school, which is in El Paso, Texas. And she posted a video of her first graders leaving the classroom and selecting, you know, fist bump, high five, you know, or whatever type of, of greeting or, you know, farewell that they wanted to, to give her. And it's one of these things where every student had their own customized one and she remembered everyone to the T, right? Right. And um, you could just see how the hugs that were shared really helped set the tone for the day 
and, um, you know, created this connection. You know, like we all crave touch, right, as human beings. Um, but showed these students that there was a place that they were safe and really belonged. Um, so one of the members of the tribe, uh, Larry Joya, who lives in Pittsburgh, um, gifted Miss Blancas's herping socks. And, you know, the tweet um, that went out, um, you know, started to catch fire, if you will. And um, then more pink socks were gifted to her class. And then as people started to see this happening, and Ms. Blanc has helped pioneer what is a kindness curriculum that they use at the school um, and that is now starting to be used throughout that whole school system. Um, and eventually uh, the pink socks founder, you know, Nick, uh, Nick Adkins, went with a team of board members flying into El Paso um, and leading everybody in, you know, what is a day of kindness where 1,300 pairs of these socks were gifted and kids got to hear the message that the world is actually full of good, that we should love each other, that we should be kind to each other first. And it was an incredibly impactful experience. There were cheerleaders who were doing kindness cheers um, you know, tears were obviously uh, shed. Um, the principal let everyone in activity, and the cheerleaders were cheerleading respect, kindness. Well, um, it we, was this incredibly impactful experience. And we need to note that somewhere along in this timeline that you're giving us, there were the El Paso shootings, right? Correct. And correct. You know, and and Mrs. Blanca's class, the school is in El Paso, right? Yep. And, yep. So, and they were trying to figure out how to move on, right? Um, right? You know, and how you pull together as a community given that situation. And so your pink socks um, helped with that moving on, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It was a way to focus people mm-hmm. on, you know, some of the positivity that can come out of um, tragedy. Um, and unfortunately there was more tragedy in this story that happened a little bit later, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but it really, uh, you know, to impact kids at that age and teach them that kindness is the first thing that they should fall back on in any given situation. I mean, that messaging was, was huge. And Nick likes always to say, you know, the world is full of good. When you believe it, you see it, keep doing that. Um, you know, he wants these kids to be that change and to lead by example and to, you know, if you can be anything right, be kind. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, and we should let the, the listeners know that the story that you're relating is on the blog for Pink Socks on their website. Um, and uh, can you give us the website address? Is it just pinksocks.org or pinksocks? It's pinksocks.life. Dot life. Okay. And dot life. And, you know, any donations that end up being made go directly to gifting socks. And we have many more schools that would like to engage with gifting socks and the kindness curriculum. Um, and so people who donate help make that happen. And it's just something, again, we're, we're incredibly proud of. And so, but this story you're relating is on the blog under the uh, teaching kindness uh, section, but then, correct. and Mrs. Blancas is this leader. Um, I've read a lot of the uh, statements. I mean, she was a leader in the community, not just simply in what was going on with the school and your socks. And then something very unfortunate happened with Mrs. Blancas. Can you tell us what that was? 
Yeah. Um, Mrs. Blancas was absolutely a leader. She was a teacher in the truest sense of that word, all of the generosity that she had of, of spirit. Um, but, you know, COVID hit. And, um, you know, we hear stories um, of families who are affected with, with one less seat at the table. And unfortunately, Ms. Blancas was affected by COVID um, and struggled with it for quite some time and then eventually passed away, um, you know, leaving, you know, leaving a family uh, in the wake of that tragedy. And, um, you know, it, it's sad that some of, you know, the brightest lights end up being snuffed out um, who had the potential to do so much good in this world. And her legacy is this kindness curriculum. Um, and the ability to get other schools to sign on to it and, again, affect, you know, very early on in, in, in kids' development, kind of, you know, their focus on, on being kind first. So uh, we miss her um, and, you know, obviously um, our, our sit there with her family and their grief, but um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tragic situation. Well, and the, the other – there's another blog post and it is extremely tragic and – you know, I told you off air that as I was reading a, the blog post about Mrs. Blancas, all I could do was sob. Um, yeah. But there's another blog post on uh, pinksocks.life uh, about vulnerability and the pink socks. And what grabbed me about that is if you, if you see somebody with a pink sock, you know automatically they subscribe to kindness and compassion. And it yep. means they are safe humans for you. Isn't that something that is unbelievable, yeah. Jamie? It's a, it's a self-selecting community of people who want to have a positive impact in the world. Um, and if you go you know, to the Pink Socks blog, there's literally 50 of these blog posts there of these inspirational stories of how people got involved and what pink socks means to them. And I think that's the neat thing about pink socks is while there's a general message, you know, people are using pink socks to raise money for their own charities. People are using uh, pink socks as a way to connect with other people. Um, but you know, like if you go to any conference and you see someone wearing these pink socks with the mustaches, you can go up to them and say nice socks and you know, you're going to meet someone new who is going to be, a, you know, a, a kindness advocate. And I, I think that that is such an incredible thing. And what a, what a great, what a great common ground. Ellie, oh right? my God. What, a, what a great common ground to have where we can all pull together and know that you're going to run into someone who has that similar belief. Oh my God. I just, okay. We have a minute left. Jamie, what made you an idealist? Because you really are, and I, I want to applaud you for all of your work. But what made you um, what made you this way? You know, it, it, it's a good question. I think you know, just growing up, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which was a very normal place to grow up. You know, steel town, um, which just had great people and great neighbors, and I always felt very supported. Um, you know, from my community. And I think this concept of community has always been something that's really important to me. I'm also a child of divorced parents. So um, I was old enough when my parents got their divorce to see the impact that, you know, division of a community can create firsthand. And so I've always been about creating community. And I think if you're going to create community, you've, you've got to be an idealist. Like <laughs> this is about trying to create a better world for everybody. And, you know, like it's like during COVID, 
for a part of it, I was actually very emboldened. I was like, look, the world has given up trillions of dollars of GDP to lock arms around these issues. And maybe we're, we're not all talking about each other as different races and different nations and, and different needs. We're like one human race. And I think for me, that's what this is about. It's about showing people how we can support each other and build bridges instead of build walls and tear each other down. Jamie, I could talk with you for three hours, okay? <laughs> idealist to idealist, because I don't think we would run out of anything to talk about. But unfortunately, uh, we've come to the end of uh, the time that we have together. I just want to thank you for being on LE 2.0 Radio. I just And again, I applaud you for all the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And for anyone that wants to kind of engage in the discussion with us, Ellie, obviously they can do that on Twitter. I'm at Jamie Edwards. I, I love engaging these types of discussions. And, um, you know, I, I'm super, super grateful for this opportunity. Oh, that's just great. And it's spelled J-A-M-E-Y, right? Correct. Okay. All right. Well, Jamie, um, uh, we're going to uh, need to cut off. And uh, listeners, we're going to take a break. And when I come back, um, I'll do the C block and talk to you about What's going on in America right now about transgender people? Listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. We'll be back in a sec. Thanks. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. Ellie 2.0 Radio, Ellie Krug here on lovely AM 950. I hope, uh, I hope you really enjoyed that uh, reprised interview of uh, Jamie Edwards because I, pink socks, what a great concept, a great idea, a bunch of idealism going there. Okay, C Block here. This is where we talk about my idealism, the work that I do. And uh, slowly I've been doing more live events, although it looks like that's going to kind of... Um, that's going to be really, really limited going forward. But uh, on Monday, I spoke to a church in the larger metro area here in the Twin Cities. Um, and it was the, you know, the kind of the ladies auxiliary. That's a really bad phrase, Ellie. It was the women of the church. I think that's a better phrase that had asked me to come speak. And they wanted me to come and talk about what it meant to be LGBTQ. And then um, they wanted me to facilitate a conversation as well. Um, and I I said, sure, I'd be happy to come. Uh, it was a stormy Monday night, but we had about 35 people in the audience. Most of them, I would guess, most of the people, uh, for the most part, it was all women, although there were a couple of uh, male-appearing humans there. But I don't think anybody in the audience was younger than 60, <laughs> maybe somewhere up into their uh, late 70s, early 80s. Um, but you know what? It was a very welcoming group. 
it was, I think, the very first time most of them had ever met a transgender human in real life. But interestingly, okay, interestingly, now when I, I, I gave a talk, it's uh, how to be welcoming to uh, what it meant to be LGBTQ. But I, whenever I do that kind of talk, I take a poll at the beginning. And um, I, I always want to know if people believe being LGBTQ is a choice or not. And it's a very simple poll. And so um, when we do it online, it's easy to do it online. But without doing it online, then um, I had everybody shut shut their eyes and I asked them, you know, who here, raise your hand if you believe that being LGBTQ is not a choice. Raise your, you know, put your hand down, raise your hand if you believe it is a choice. Or third part of that is raise your hand if you're uncertain about it. Interestingly, out of the 35, the vast majority, I mean, we're talking like 90% of them didn't believe that being LGBTQ is a choice. We had a couple of people that did and a couple of people that were uncertain. But the vast majority didn't believe that it was a choice. I thought that that was – I mean, talk about progress, everyone. But part of the thing that I did talk about was um, you know, that the view of the world as it relates to LGBTQ people but particularly trans people is that it is – choice. And that's why there is so much marginalization in the world. So I have this exercise where I go around because I have a saying, everyone, that, you know, human authenticity will not leave you alone until you listen to it. But authenticity shows up not only around sexuality or gender, it shows up, you know, whether you're, you know, a fisher person or whether you're a hiker or whether you're a writer or, or a, you know, a crafter from Michael's, you know, Michael's is your second home. But so I went through the audience and I asked who my writers were, and but particularly I asked, who are my singers? And a woman raised her hand and I said, well, let me, will you work with me here a little bit? And I said to her, I want you to imagine that you can never, ever again sing a single note, ever again. It turns out that not only... Not only is she, you know, involved with the choir at the church, but she's a music teacher. And when I said to her, never again, a single, single note, her face, facial expression changed. She crossed her arms and she got indignant. Well, I can't do that. And she went on to explain that when she was four years old, she asked her mother, no, actually, I think she told her mother that she wanted piano lessons. That is human authenticity. And she, and she was a really great sport, but she made my point when she became indignant and said, no, I can't do that. I can't not sing. That's just like for LGBTQ people, we can't not be ourselves. I will tell you, the audience there was extremely welcoming. They were extremely open. And I asked everyone to raise their hands of who had LGBTQ people in their life, and the vast majority of these people did. But they also, one or two, expressed that they were afraid to share within the church that they had somebody LGBTQ in their life for fear of being judged. And I urged them not to be afraid. So there you go. The work of Ellie Krug, idealist, trying to change the world.
<laughs> with older women at a church. <laughs> I'm trying, everyone. I am. Okay. That wraps up another show. I got to give a big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, it's always great to work with you. You are a quite the consummate pro. And listeners, um, please, I'm hearing more and more people that like to listen to this uh, podcast. Please share about it, even though sometimes I can't read my own words and I stumble over things and get tongue-tied. Hopefully, you know I am trying here, trying my best to make the world better. You go out and do that as well. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.